Welcome to the 100th episode of Never Again Is Now, a podcast about anti-Semitism. I am Evelyn Marcus. And I am Phyllis Zimbler-Miller. For this special occasion of our 100th episode, we have invited a special guest, one of the most fearless fighters for the rights of the Jewish people and for Israel, Brooke Goldstein. She will discuss her upcoming book with us and her groundbreaking ideas about how we should fight anti-Semitism. Brooke Goldstein is a New York City-based human rights attorney, author, and award-winning filmmaker. At the age of 24, she made the award-winning documentary The Making of a Martyr, for which she traveled to the West Bank and interviewed members of the Al-Aqsa, Fatah, Islamic Jihad, and Hamas terrorist groups about their recruitment of children as suicide bombers. <clears throat> Brooke is the founder and currently the executive director of the Lawfare Project, a nonprofit that provides pro bono legal services to protect the civil and human rights of the Jewish people worldwide. Brooke is a regular commentator on Fox News and has been featured in several media, including CNN. She lectured at New York University, Berkeley and Stanford University, and she briefed government officials at the US State Department, the White House, the Pentagon and the UK Parliament. She's a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. Her first book was, was a guide for journalists on how to report on Islamic extremism in an age of Islamist lawfare. In September, Brooke's second book will be released, titled End Jew Hatred, a Manual for Mobilization, in which she offers a groundbreaking strategy for ending Jew hatred globally. Brooke has received many awards for her courage and as a guardian of the Jewish people and the Jewish state. Brooke, you're the best person we could have wished for on our 100th episode. We're extremely honored to have you as our special guest. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I get to ask the first question today, and it's actually about courage. Because you speak up against issues that most people are afraid to address such as the use of Palestinian children as shields by the terrorists, and also how Islamists try to quench free speech by having lawsuits against uh, supporting Islamic extremism. So where does your courage come from, where most others don't dare to tackle these subjects? So first, I just want to thank you both for having me on your podcast. What an honor it is to be on the 100th <laughs> podcast. Um, you know, I, I, I don't like when people use the word courage with me because I don't see it as any sense of courage. I see it as a sense of responsibility. Um, I just actually uh, gave a speech at a FIDF event, a Friends of the IDF event, where I, my speech followed that of two soldiers uh, who are much younger than me, who are risking their lives every day in the Jewish army to protect the Jewish state. And it is because of them that we are free and able to speak our minds both in the West and in Israel. So I don't see this as courage at all. Um, it is a sense of responsibility. I am a mother of three young children and I just want them to live in a world 
where they do not have to experience the type of Jew hatred that I have experienced, that my uh, ancestors had have experienced. And that's really actually the premise of the movement, the end Jew hatred movement, is that now is the time that in our lifetime we can finally deal with this virus of anti-Semitism, with this terrible scourge of Jew hatred that just keeps going up and down and ebbs and flows. I think we have the tools right now. We have the responsibility. You know, the truth is on our side. The law is on our side to utilize the same tactics that other minority rights movements have utilized for themselves, but but for us. Um, you mentioned also about accusations of Islamophobia when talking about, oh, there's something outside my window. I apologize for that noise. Um, you know, talking about the things that other people haven't had the, the courage to talk about. I grew up as a great admirer um, of the US Constitution. I was born and raised in Canada. I'm actually a dual citizen because my mom is American. And I uh, studied and am licensed to practice law in the United States. And we have the First Amendment, which guarantees the right to speak freely about all issues, no matter how offensive they are, but especially about important issues of national security. And after I made my movie, having had the experience that I had where I risked my life to expose human rights abuses. No, that was stupidity, actually. <laughs> Naivete, I would say. I was 24 years old, as you mentioned before. Excuse me, I have a little bit of a cold. Um, uh, so, so I risked my life to expose human rights abuses happening against innocent Muslim children. And when I started speaking publicly about this issue, people started coming at me and, and accusing me of Islamophobia, when what I was doing is raising awareness about issues like female genital mutilation, like slavery practices throughout the, the Muslim world, like the recruitment and indoctrination of innocent Muslim children, specifically Palestinian children, towards violence. And I was called anti-Muslim or Islamophobic for risking my life to raise awareness about these issues. And, and if doing that is anti-Muslim, if advocating for the human rights of Muslim children is anti-Muslim and Muslim women, what then is pro-Muslim? And isn't that the bigotry of low expectations? So I've always felt, felt the responsibility and the need to speak openly and freely about these issues. We live in a country where our free speech rights are guaranteed by the US Constitution, and we have a responsibility to do this. So. That's what I've dedicated my career to doing. And you do have a little bit of a family history also about the Holocaust. Would you like to share that briefly? Because I think that must have also informed who you are. Absolutely. I think that we are all informed by the traumas, uh, most recently the Holocaust, which uh, has inflicted incredible intergenerational trauma on our people. Uh, I am the grandchild of Holocaust survivors. Uh, my, my grandmother survived five concentration and labor camps. My grandfather was a partisan fighter uh, in, in, with uh, Polish people. He was the commander of a Polish partisan unit. And I have spoken a lot and I actually write about him and my grandmother a lot in my book. That's uh, my maternal side. And then on my paternal side, they are survivors of also labor camps, the gulag, and uh, the siege of Leningrad. So my whole family went through devastation and war. And then miraculously, 
emigrated to the United States and Canada where they managed to raise healthy, beautiful, loving families where we were instilled with Jewish values. I was taught Zionism. I went to a Hebrew day school and I'm incredibly blessed and lucky to have the family that I do um, who are really supportive of my work. Um, Brooke, um, thank you for sharing that personal backgrounds. Um, your new book, And Jew Hatred, a manual for mobilization, will be launched in September. It was the number one pre-order new release on Amazon under Jewish biographies. Why did you decide to write this book? And what is the main message of the book? Um, this book uh, is a product, I, I would think initially, of, of a study that I commissioned excuse me, in 2020, uh, when I saw that everybody was hashtagging Black Lives Matter, all my friends were joining this hashtag Me Too movement. Nobody was questioning what was going on, even though in the latter, you know, people like Linda Sarsour and Tamika Mallory were leading this movement. They're both, you know, anti-Semitic and anti-Israel and manipulating the women's rights issues for political purposes. Um, they were hashtagging Black Lives Matter, even though we were seeing rioting in the streets and looting up and down Madison Avenue. And, you know, even though the, the stances that were coming out were very anti-Israel. And I, I wanted to understand why is it that when I would ask the same people who were so willing to get involved in these other social justice movements to get involved in the pro-Israel movement or to post something that's pro-Israel, they refused to do it. Um, so I funded a study into the strategies, the tactics, the messaging, the motivations, the organization um, of all of these minority rights movements from Black Lives Matter and the New Women's Movement, but also the End Asian Hate Movement, the LGBTQIA plus movement. We studied the Soviet Jewry Movement, the Civil Rights Movement of the 50s and 60s. And I want to show what are the strategies and language, you know, and tactics that these movements are using to their benefit that maybe we can learn from, that we can also use as a Jewish community. We are the oldest, most persecuted minority community in human history. And yet we still have not been able to achieve parity in the age of minority rights movements. Well, you can't say the N word, for example, uh, in public or even in private. It is still socially acceptable to engage in the type of anti-Semitic tropes that, you know, should never be said. What, why is it socially acceptable? Why don't we have the same political, legal, you know, societal consequences for Jew hatred as we do for discriminating against other minority communities? And so we commissioned the study and the book is about the results, what we learned from that study. There's basically four uh, main conclusions, if you'd like me to go through them, uh, that we got from this study about how to launch successful minority rights movements. And the answer is, yes, we can. Yes, we can absolutely use the strategies that have been successful for other movements, for our movement, for a Jewish civil rights movement. One of the incredible things that we found in the study is that there has never been a Jewish civil rights movement ever in modern history, okay? There's been the Soviet Jewry movement, which was about getting Jews out, right, of the Soviet Union and, and placing them elsewhere. 
There was the Zionist movement, which was started by Theodor Herzl, which was again uh, a movement to get Jews out of where they're being persecuted and to establish the state of Israel where we can exercise sovereignty. There's been Jews for Black Lives Matter, Jews for women's rights, Jews for gay rights, Jews for Muslims' rights, but there's never been a Jews for Jews movement, which advocates that Jewish people as a minority community in the diaspora deserve equal protection under the law, deserve their civil rights under the law to be enforced equally. And so that was shocking to me because we have been so active in almost every minority rights movement. We were front and center, you know, with Martin Luther King. We had, you know, Rabbi Heschel who was marching together. Lawyers, Jewish lawyers have gotten involved. And yet we've never organized for ourselves. So the main premise of this book is that the time is now for a Jewish civil rights movement that is separate and apart from any type of pro-Israel advocacy, because you don't have to be a Zionist and you don't have to move to Israel to have equal protection under the law here and now. And whatever is happening thousands of miles away in a foreign country has absolutely nothing to do with whether Jews have equal protection in the United States and elsewhere. And what we're seeing now, the modern forms of anti-Semitism, which is anti-Zionism, basically you project your hatred of a foreign government on somebody, on Jews because of who they are, where they were born, the religion they practice or the way they look. And you project your hatred on someone because of their characteristics and you discriminate against them. So, for example, if I hate the way that China handled COVID, I can't turn around to a local Chinese American student and, you know, say you're a dirty COVID spreader and discriminate against them. That would be bigotry. That would be racist. That would be disgusting. But right now, as what happened to my client, my former client, Jonathan Carton, because he was born in Israel, he was spat on and called a dirty Zionist baby killer. And that's okay, apparently, because you hate Israel so much, you can project your hatred on someone because they're Israeli or because they're Jewish. That is wrong. Just as it would be wrong for any other minority, it is wrong to do that for Jews. And the more we respond to anti-Jewish discrimination with pro-Israel advocacy, the more we feed into their ability to use this as an affirmative defense. So, you, so that you would, say, that, wait, yeah. say that again. I think that point is so important. Could you say it again? Sure. So, so what I'm saying is when Jews are discriminated against here, okay, the response isn't pro-Israel advocacy. The response is civil rights advocacy. So it, for an example, uh, we ended up uh, suing the National Lawyers Guild for enacting a, a BDS resolution and enforcing that resolution against our client, an Israeli company. When we went to court or, or in our, our, our briefs and our motions, I didn't argue the points of the BDS movement. I didn't have to argue that Israel is not an apartheid state or Israel does not engage in an occupation or Jews are indigenous to Judea, so how can we occupy? All I had to prove is that uh, my client was treated differently because of a protected status, because of race, ethnicity, national origin, you know, where they were born or where the company is incorporated, the color of their skin, the sexual orientation. These are protected categories. You can't discriminate against someone because they're a woman or because they're gay or because they have a different skin color or because of where they're born. 
So the so-called BDS movement is unlawful commercial discrimination against somebody because of where they were born. Again, an, an example, if I'm angry at Iran for their failure to disarm, okay, nuclear, the nuclear disarmament issues, I can't then go around and put up a sign on my, you know, uh, storefront and say, no Iranians allowed. Okay, if I'm angry at the government of Sudan, I can't open up a restaurant and say no blacks allowed here. If you hate the Israeli government for whatever purposes, you cannot say that I'm going to do business in America and discriminate against Israelis because of where they were born. That is racist. It is unlawful. It is uh, commercial discrimination. And it has to be dealt with as such. So you cannot respond to anti-Jewish discrimination with pro-Israel advocacy. You're giving them an affirmative defense to discriminate against you. You're giving them a reason to project their hatred on you because of your protected class. So, so th that's that, that point. And then we learned a lot more things from this study that we are, uh, that I feel compelled to share because I want every single Jewish advocate, Jewish organization, to adopt these strategies and tactics and use them for their advantage. Uh, one of the other tactics that um, we talk about or I talk about in the book is a grassroots mobilization. Successful minority rights movements, civil rights movements are top down and, and bottom up. They, they marry you know, uh, the, the advocacy at the top with true grassroots mobilization and organization, going into communities, training and rising up new leaders, providing communities with the legal, financial, strategic resources. Those communities need to mobilize on a grassroots level to ensure consequences for the behavior that they want to target. So, you know, while we are so top heavy in our organize in mm -hmm. our organization in the Jewish community, you know, we're told that if you want to fight anti-Semitism, write a check <laughs> to Simon Wiesenthal Center, write a check to the Federal, we will take care of it for you. But I and that has served us well. And this is not a criticism. And I've worked with and continue to work with all of the major Jewish organizations and they are doing wonderful work. But we also have to evolve because it because that strategy is not working for us anymore when it comes to moving the needle on the rise of anti-Semitism. And you see a lot of frustration on the grassroots level from communities. And what I'm saying is that we have to take this in our own hands. I tell students when they come to me, they have no responsibility to advocate for Israel, but they do have a responsibility to stand up for themselves. You know, every single Jewish person has a responsibility to engage in grassroots activism to ensure that they and their children have equal rights and their civil rights are protected in this country. We cannot rely on the U.S. government, we cannot rely on the Israeli government, and we cannot rely on organizations to do the jobs alone. They need the support, the type of communal support that we see in other minority rights movements coming from a grassroots mobilization perspective. And then the, one of the other major uh, lessons that we learned also that I talk about a lot in my book is that successful movements, successful minority rights movements, ensure consequences for bad behavior. Mm. Okay, so if you are the in the hashtag MeToo movement, they focused in on Harvey Weinstein. 
Harvey Weinstein is by no means the only male misogynist in the world. And the Me Too movement has not gotten rid of male misogyny and the Black Lives Matter has not gotten rid of anti-Black racism. But what they have done is ensured that there are consequences, societal, legal, political, media consequences, economic consequences for engaging in behavior that is offensive to that community. We live in the Jewish world, okay, in, in what we call a very target-rich environment, right? I don't even remember who the anti-Semite of the week was, you know, last week. Was it Roger Waters? Was it this campus? Was it that BDS vote? I don't remember. And our entire strategy is reactive. We're always reacting to what the other side is doing. We can't have a one, five, ten-year plan, especially campus groups, because their entire you know, mandate is, you know, Israeli apartheid week is coming up. How do we respond to that? Or, you know, a BDS vote is coming up against Israel. How do we re reply to that? We can't set our own agenda. So when you go on the offense, when you pick, you know, a particular target and you say this is wrong, and then you mobilize the resources of the community, you unify the community, you engage, you use the strategies and tactics that I talk about in my book, and you don't stop until you see that there are consequences for this particular issue, only then can you establish a precedent where people see if I engage in this behavior, there's going to be a consequence to it. And then that will have a deterrent effect. But what the world is seeing is that they can engage in Jew hatred with no consequence because next week somebody else is going to do the same thing and we're going to forget about them. We're going to lose focus and there will be no consequences for that. So we have to rejigger how we operate. And a lot of it also has to do with unifying the Jewish community, right? We, we operate in these silos. So if, you know, God forbid, there is a black person who is who's uh, uh, subjected to some form of police brutality or what have you in Queens, right? The next day, the NAACP, Al Sharpton, all of the organizations, the ACLU will be standing behind that person with a unified singular message with particular calls to action. And they will be working together to ensure that there will be consequences for that behavior. But if a swastika, you know, is drawn on a, you know, a, a Jewish synagogue in Brooklyn, good luck. Good luck getting the Federation, the Conference of Presidents, Hillel, all of the organizations standing together with the same message. Because we're siloed. We have big budgets run by CEOs who are answerable to their donors, who are answerable to their boards, who view themselves as operating in a zero-sum game where they're competing for donor money. Who's going to take credit? So we're not able to work together to formulate the strategies and plans on a massive communal level and focus our intention on particular incidents or persons where we want to see change and not stop until that change is achieved in that particular area. So, so let me ask you, do you think the new White House policy is going to help in terms of getting more grassroots involvement or is it going to be more of the same? Well, I'll speak in general. We in the Jewish community and also our allies, and I support, I want to say, I full on support an initiative from a Biden administration, from any administration that raises awareness and focuses on anti-Semitism and is um, dedicated to combating that. The issue that was raised 
with this particular uh, initiative is that it involved the Council on American Islamic Relations. It's like taking, asking, you know, a Nazi to define what 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 Jew hatred is, right? The Council on, on American Islamic Relations uh, was an unindicted co-conspirator in a major terror financing trial. They have too many uh, former employees and people who and or people who are associated with them who are in jail for financing terror or for aiding and abetting material support for terror. They are the main proponents of this whole Islamophobomania campaign to shut down free speech about issues of national security that are theologically motivated. Um, they are not friends of the Jewish community. Uh, they are anti-American as far as I'm concerned. They're anti-free speech and they're not the right partners for an initiative that is, you know, is meant to be taken seriously on combating anti-Semitism. And we have to ask ourselves and we have to also ask publicly these questions. Why is it that a group like Council on American Islamic Relations is brought in to deal with an issue of Jew hatred, of which I would argue they could be one of the main proponents of it in this country, in the United States. So, so that was a big shocker um, and totally unnecessary and very hurtful to the Jewish community because the Council on American Islamic Relations has come after many of my colleagues. It has come after me trying to shut us down as we speak about issues of anti-Semitism. Um, so that's number one. But I would emphasize that again. We as a community need to organize on a grassroots level to stand up for ourselves. We cannot rely on anybody to do this for us. We should support initiatives um, that are meant to help us. We should cooperate, but we have to take things in our own hands. And how to do that, I outline in my book. You have to organize yourself on a community level you have to study the strategies and tactics that I outline in a book, and you have to zero in on the problems you see uh, in, in your, uh, sorry, I got a call, the problems you see in your community and come up with, with plans to organize to ensure consequences for behaviors that target the Jewish community in, in a discriminatory way. So the onus is on us to mobilize, you know, we are so late in the game we, and we know, we know how to mobilize for others. All I'm saying is let's do it for ourselves as well. And, and Brooke, um, from, if I understand you well, you're saying that, that organizing is not something we can leave to our Jew, existing Jewish organizations. Is that correct? Well, I, it's something that we must um, do ourselves, but it's also uh, we also must uh, pressure our organizations who represent us, who survive off uh, donations from the community, who have fiduciary duties to the Jewish community, to use tactics and strategies that are effective to stop using strategies that have not worked for us to seriously study how to effectively combat the issue and to rejigger how they're doing it in a way that brings results. Because right now we are not seeing the results we need to see from these multi-million dollar uh, budgeted organizations. And it's not because they have bad intentions, it's because they're still using the same strategies that worked for us you know, 20 years ago, but 
it's 2023. Things have changed. They have to evolve. And evolving doesn't mean adopting progressive woke terminology. That's not what evolution is. That's going backwards. That's harming the community. Evolving does not mean adopting critical race theory and, and diversity, equity, inclusion, education, when that uh, is historical revisionism that paints Jews as white colonial oppressors. I mean, how insane is that? And yet what some organizations are doing is adopting this progressive woke ideology and pretending as though they're evolving, but they're not, they're going backwards. Evolving means taking a deep dive as I have in my book and studying the language the strategy, the organization, the tactics, the methodology that has worked for other minority rights movements, which in some is grassroots, ensures consequences for bad behavior. And I think third and most importantly as well is civil rights advocacy. We spoke about you know separating what pro-Israel advocacy is from civil rights advocacy, but we didn't talk about what is civil rights advocacy. Civil rights advocacy is when you advocate for the Jewish community as a minority community, separate and apart from what's happening thousands of miles away in Israel, and ensure that our rights are protected. That's using the legal system as well. Um, you'll, you'll see that other minority rights communities have sort of like a one-two punch, right? You have the, the Black Lives Matter works with the NAACP. You know, Me Too movement works with the ACLU, the Center for Constitutional Rights, the Southern Poverty Law Center, et cetera. There is always an impact litigation strategy. All of the rights uh, and privileges that we have in the United States of America are mostly products of seminal civil rights cases that have uh, where communities have gone to the court, have argued for interpretations under the Constitution, which you know many say is a living document, and then the justices read into the Constitution to uh, protect certain rights. So, for example, um, Roe v. Wade, right, women's right to choose, which was recently overturned. That's all product of seminal civil rights litigation. Brown v. Board of Education, the reason why we, we have desegregation in America is because of that one case. It took, you know, a plaintiff to stand up, to go to court, and to argue that that segregation in the educational context is unconstitutional, and they won. And they changed the landscape, the civil rights landscape in America forever. The recent affirmative action case by uh, the Asian community, and there was an NGO that brought it on behalf of the Asian community, ended affirmative action. So we need as a Jewish, whether you agree with these results or not, I'm using them as an example that in a healthy democratic society, we don't make change you know, through violence. We make change through lobbying and through litigation. That's what happens in a healthy democracy. And so one of the arguments that I make in my book is something that I've practiced for the last 10 years, which is that the Jewish community must pair grassroots civil rights advocacy with impact litigation, bringing cases on behalf of Jewish communities and persons and companies that are unlawfully discriminated against to courts of law to ensure that those who do unlawfully discriminate against the community achieve receive justice 
um, and that there is a uh, precedent set in law and that there's a deterrent effect for people who want to engage in similar behavior. We have to use impact litigation. And that's what I do every day with the Lawfare Project. We bring groundbreaking cases on behalf of Jewish communities around the world. Because if we don't do it, if we don't stand up for ourselves on the street or in courts of law, nobody's going to do it for us. So the onus is on every single person listening or watching this podcast to wake up in the morning and think, what can I do? How can I exercise my influence, my authority? How can I spend my time to ensure that Jew hatred feels consequences? And I want to emphasize legal consequences. We're not talking about violence. You know, where I think that other minority rights movements, especially Black Lives Matter, lost a lot of support is when they started engaging in unlawful, illegal activity. We do not have to do that. It's completely unnecessary. The truth is on our side. The law is on our side. We just have to take advantage of the legal protections that we have. We have to take advantage of the fact that we live in 2023. We have an impartial judicial system in the United States. We have the most remarkable legal document ever created by man, the U.S. Constitution. The time is now for us to mobilize and take advantage of this opportunity and stand up for ourselves on the street and both in courts of law. And in addition to legal consequences, uh, what I see these other civil rights movements do also is um, make sure people get reputation damage if they engage in racism or discrimination or misogyny or anything like that. Absolutely. Look, I, I always say you have the right to free speech. You could say whatever you want. You can be a bigot. You can be a member of the KKK. You just can't engage in incitement to immediate violence. Um, but that doesn't mean that there's not going to be consequences for your speech. That's the most. I was on thing. Pierce Morgan the other day uh, with a woman named Pearl, who is just a revolting human being who has used her platform on the internet to speak about things that are horrible against women, uh, against blacks, against Jews. And she's complained of being deplatformed when she's on Pierce Morgan and she has millions of clicks and followers on YouTube. Now, what bothers me is not that she has a platform. What bothers me is that when people speak language that's pro-Israel, when they engage in Jewish advocacy, they are deplatformed. So you have social media giants, you have, you know, internet, I don't even know the terminology, like the providers um, that have policies that are being unequally applied. So when you are not allowed, for example, to post COVID denial, but you're allowed to post freely Holocaust denial, something is wrong. If you are a private company, you have to enforce um, the rules and regulations equally across the board. You can't do so in a discriminate in this discriminatory fashion. Now, I personally believe that these social media companies have, have become somewhat of, of a public space, right? Like a public square, and that they should not be regulating speech that they think is untrue. Um, they shouldn't be allowing speech except for that, which is, you know, incitement, pornography, obscenity, similar to what uh, the Constitution does not protect, because we see 
how major companies and now we're seeing what was happening with Facebook uh, being pressured um, when it came to uh, COVID issues. We see that they're not able to make the decisions um, necessary to, to really have a free and open marketplace of ideas. Um, but if they are going to censor things that they think are hateful or untrue, then they have to be applying their standards across the board equally. Thank you. Brooke, um, I would like to, to move to a, a bit of a different I think Phyllis had, had a question yes. that, that may have related. And I, and I think it's important because we only have a few more minutes. I would like people listening to this talk to see themselves in it by what, this is what I mean, grassroots. Can you give us one or two examples of something that happens to an individual? And instead of, you know, reporting it to whichever Jewish group, the steps that an individual could say, this is the kind of thing that's infringing on my civil rights and I need to go to the lawfare project or this because this needs to get public attention. I need to know what absolutely need to see myself in that example, if you know what I mean. Okay, so so first I want to say that you shouldn't have to wait until something happens to you until you contact the lawyers at the lawfare project. In fact, you know, litigation is the last resort. I don't want to spend my time and money on that unless it's absolutely necessary. But just like you're not going to build a house, you know, without an, uh, an architect, you shouldn't be a student on a U.S. college campus or an Israeli company, you know, in, in, the, in the workplace environment without consulting with attorneys at every step of the way. And, that, and that's why we are here for you, even when there isn't a problem, because what we want to do is avoid problems. So, for example, um, we were working with a student group at a major uh, U.S. college and they were worried they wanted they wanted to put on an event. And they were worried that it was going to get disrupted. Okay, so they didn't put on the event, get disrupted, and then come to us. They came to us before with their concerns. And we worked with them, and we worked with the administration. And I want to emphasize that most often, U.S. college administrations want to resolve things amicably. They want to do the right thing. They're being faced with an enormous amount of pressure. Okay, from anti-Jewish so-called pro-Palestinian advocates to to, you know, do what they want and they're loud and, and they they're threatening. And from our side, they don't hear the same amount of, of loud advocacy, but they want to do the right thing. So we were contacted by this student group saying they want to put on an event. They're worried that it might get shut down. We worked with the school. We made sure that there were cameras uh, at the event. We made sure that the school enforced its policy that anybody who would disrupt would be immediately removed and would be facing consequences. In fact, we worked with the school um, to have a small contract that anyone who attended the event had to sign, recognizing that if they disrupted the event, that they would have consequences from the university. They had to sign it. Prior to entering the event, they had to show their photo ID and other things like this. And we made sure that the security was there and the event went off beautifully. So, so the moral again of the story is don't wait until something happens, contact us to help you um, put on your event or engage in what you're doing. 
because there's nothing wrong with with getting counsel, pro bono counsel, every step of the way. Number two, if something does happen to you, as you said, Phyllis, it's so important to know what your rights are. We have an incredible uh, two pages that's available. I think it's on our website. And if not, I can I can send it to you and you can upload a link when you have the podcast aired that says if then if, you know, uh, I'm I'm treated differently because of my religion or because of my Zionist identity, then, you know, what type of laws that might violate. And um, every student should read this pamphlet so they understand um, what their rights are, what their rights are under Title VI of the Civil Rights Act, to have a campus environment free of hostility that targets you because of your identity. And Zionism is a part of your religious, ethnic, and cultural identity when Jews are given political litmus tests in order to participate in federally funded or state funded activities, that is unlawful. If you are prevented from participating because of your Zionist identity, that is illegal. You should contact us right away. Uh, the issue is that, unfortunately, um, students are being discouraged to stand up for themselves. Uh, on some campuses, we have uh, so-called Jewish student groups that don't act um, in the best interests of the Jewish students. They're acting actively working against their interests, which is unbelievably uh, tragic. And also, you know, we're told not to be, that we're not victims, that we can't claim our victimhood status, just be quiet, just still put your head down, you could be retaliated against, you're going to get a bad grade. You know, we need to educate our youth um, and empower them to have the courage to stand up for themselves when something happens to them. It is 2023. Nobody has a gun to our head. We have rights. We can assert them. We have every right to equal protection. We should not be ashamed to aggressively stand up for ourselves. I'll never forget when I first uh, launched the Lawfare Project and we started engaging in legal actions. I got a call from um, the CEO of a major left-leaning Jewish organization yelling and screaming at me, you are too aggressive. Who do you think you are? We are negotiating behind closed doors. Yeah, for the last 10 years, you've been negotiating with them behind closed doors. Where is that getting you? You know, you're blowing things up. I couldn't, you know, I, I pictured myself, do you think a member of the black community would call up the NAACP and say, you're too aggressively asserting the civil rights of the black community? We have to shed that need to be quiet, to not make any noise, the fear of being retaliated against, that all this has to happen behind closed doors, that we can only rely on a CEO of a, a Jewish organization that hasn't been elected, that's not accountable to the Jewish community to advocate for us. We shouldn't, we have to advocate for ourselves and we have every single right to do that. So I think the Jewish community now is coming around. They see the power of impact litigation. They see the power of getting out on the street, engaging in protests, demanding consequences, being loud, being proud, stepping into your identity, demanding the, that people respect our differences, that we don't have to assimilate, we don't have to look like everybody else or talk like everybody else to be treated equally. We have to demand uh, that we are respected based on our differences and do so loudly and proudly and aggressively. 
aggressively because only then are we going to see results. We can't ask please, pretty please. We have to force people to respect us both in courts of law and elsewhere and do so using lawful, peaceful methods. Thank you. That was exactly what I wanted to know. I, now I visualize what I need to do. And I know that Evelyn has other questions, but we promised to keep this to a certain time limit. So I and we really have like two minutes left. So is there anything else you absolutely want to say before we thank you? I just want to thank you again for having me again. I want to plug my book. It's called End Jew Hatred, A Manual for Mobilization. It is an absolute must read uh, for anybody who cares about Jew hatred and is sick and tired of reading books about anti-Semitism. This is not a book about anti-Semitism. This is a book about how to defeat Jew hatred and do so in our generation. When I was researching for this book, you know, again, I, I, I realized at that point that there has never been a book published in modern history that outlines the tactics, just like, you know, Saul Alinsky did his rules for radicals uh, for his progressive community. So too is this book for the Jewish community. And again, I don't own these methods. I'm just sharing them and I want everybody to adopt them as their own. And I want everybody also to look up the end Jew hatred movement. It is the first Jewish civil rights movement in modern history. And if you believe in ending Jew hatred in your lifetime, you are part of the movement. You should be using the hashtag end Jew hatred. And if you want to do something yourself and stop relying on others to, to, to fight the issue, but you want to be active and engage in mobilization for yourself and your children in your community, please go online to our website, start a chapter of the movement. We will provide you with as much support as we can. And I guarantee you that you will see success because miracles happen. When Jews stand up for themselves, miracles happen. But when we don't stand up for ourselves, tragedy happens. You can say that again, but we have to end now. So we won't say it again, except to thank you so much, Brooke. This has been yes, amazing. Thank you, Brooke. Thank you, Brooke, for your leadership, your vision. It's amazing. We need it. Um, and with our podcast, we are trying to motivate and equip people to and inspire people to speak up individually. And you provide so much strategy and vision um, that we all can use. So I, I would recommend everybody to uh, to buy your book as soon as it is released. I, I would say, Evelyn, what you said is so important that don't underestimate the power of the individual. You may feel overwhelmed every day you open up your email inbox and there's all these examples of anti-Semitism happening. And you may feel powerless. You are not powerless. Look at our history how history hinged on the actions of one person, whether it's Herzl, whether it's Golda Meir, okay? Whether it's the activists that we have in Berlin where two young Jewish act activists ended up gathering over 450 people to protest Jew hatred in Germany. And then they ended up influencing the German parliamentary electoral debate. The story is in my book. I have so many examples of how it takes one or two people to make a difference. You have the power to make a difference. You just need to understand 
how to do it. What are the tactics and strategies to use? So please pick up or pre-order the book and um, contact us and be part of the NGO Hatred Movement. Thank you both for having me. Thank you. We thank our listeners. For those of you who want to know more about Evelyn, myself, and our show, you can go to uh, the Never Again Is Now podcast on YouTube, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. And as we end every single episode, we say, without putting yourself in physical danger, please speak up against anti-Semitism and all hate.